My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoyed this podcast, you can show your support by either writing a brief review on iTunes or by simply becoming a patron via interviewthefuture.com. Today, my guest on the show is Professor Aaron Benenoff. Aaron is a professor at the University of Chicago who studies the history of unemployment. His upcoming book is called Automation and the Future of Work. And as you may have already guessed, today our topics of conversation will be automation, AI, unemployment, universal basic income, and maybe even the ongoing COVID-19 global pandemic. So, welcome to Singularity FM, Aaron. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Fantastic. So, if I were to meet you in a bar in Chicago somewhere, in a pizza shop or somewhere where we kind of chill out and we meet for the first time, and I say, who is Aaron Benenoff? How would you introduce yourself? Well, I, I, um, I guess I would say that I'm a historian, as you mentioned, of unemployment. And I study that, um, I study unemployment as a social reality, something that working class people have experienced, obviously, for a long time, as well as uh, the policies that states have adopted to manage the unemployed, to measure the unemployed, and so on. And I'm also interested in um, the way that's playing out today. So I'm not only a historian, I'm a kind of theorist of the present and possibly a little bit of the future. Uh, thinking about radical new policies for re-engineering or, or, or transforming the world of work. And I'm really interested in sort of really radical, utopian, even maybe, ideas about what work could look like um, in an emancipated, technologically advanced society. Wow. Okay, so you we have a lot to, to talk about already, but... Uh, you kind of already preempted my second question, which is, are you predominantly considering yourself to be a social scientist, an economist, or a historian? And now that you said what you said, maybe sort of like a, a policy um, guide uh, or analyst or, or... I think I'm primarily a historian by training. I think when you when you look at economic history, it's a little problematic. It's sort of, it's not a very large field in the, the discipline of economics. Um, it used to be a pretty large field in the discipline of history, but it's much smaller now. So I was trained as an economic historian along the lines of, I don't know, like the famous social, British social historian, Eric Hobsbawm, um, people like that, E.P. Thompson. And, um, but the work I do, yeah, is in the field of history. And I'm, I, I also, as I said, I, I comment on current events and, you know, try to participate in a very present-oriented discussion, which is different from a lot of historians. But I also think that as the world we live in gets crazier, people are looking to historians and historians are looking to the present. So there's kind of an evolving conversation there, for sure. Yeah, historians have taken a, a lot more proactive role in the last few decades, maybe... I don't know if that originally started with Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, and then eventually Yuval Noah Harari, who credits Jared as being an inspiration for his sapiens, and so on. I actually had another historian just uh, last episode that I did here. Again, by the way, a colleague of yours from the University of Chicago, Ada Palmer. Oh, great. Uh, 
and uh, we had like a two hour and 45 minute discussion uh, and, and I'm getting her back in, in June again because there was a lot more we could discuss. Um, so she's brilliant. Let me just say, I mean, she's totally she's a brilliant uh, historian yeah. and science fiction writer. So that's my impression, too. And so I already gobbled up her first uh, two books, which are pretty massive. And I'm already into the third one. Wow. Uh, and originally, my plan was to do only the first book, but because they're massive, but I just can't. Now I have to finish them all. Um, so I agree, she's totally brilliant. Uh, but let me ask you then, as a historian, what in your view are the biggest issues that humanity is contending with today? Hmm. I mean, I guess that I, the, the class, I mean, you know, you could, you could just say, I think a lot of people would agree that, first of all, climate change, right, is huge and unprecedented. Um, I think that some, if you, you know, some historians might sort of productively compare it to um, the possibility of nuclear annihilation, obviously still with us. But there, the issue was um, not doing something, you know, not not destroying the world. Um, whereas now we seem to be on a trajectory towards disaster unless we change course, and that's um, that's a very important, uh, maybe the most important topic. I think technology is a huge topic too, not just um, not just the kind of things we'll be talking about, like automation, but also biotechnology, obviously, and the, the ways that could really change the world, and then. The third thing, which is the thing I focused on the most, is um, is the economic question. And I think that capitalist economies today are uh, slowing down. They're not generating the kind of um, shared prosperity that you know. It's doubtful the extent to which they did. I think people who are who are celebrating capitalism can overstate the case of how widely that was extended. But I think that you know um, it was much more widely extended in the past, and now. Uh, we're seeing we live in a time of rising inequality, of increasing economic precarity, and I think I think humanity is going to face some real, you know, in a way across all three of these: climate change, technological change, and economic change. Human societies are going to face a pretty big um, set of choices. Something something dramatically different will have to be done. And what we see from the past is that, you know, dramatic change is the rule. It's it's episodic. You know, big changes don't happen. Um, as much gradually, they happen in really massive switches, say, like after the world wars or something like that. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think that that's that's what I want to think about and maybe contribute to in some way. So so do you think that we are currently living in one of those switches, one of those epochs where massive shifts are happening or maybe not? I don't know. I, it's very hard to say in the moment, right? It certainly feels that way in a lot of ways, but I don't think that we've, um, it, it seems like we live in a time when, I mean, obviously the COVID-19 pandemic could be a real accelerator of change, um, but it doesn't look like it will be. In a weird way, it seems like if you look at uh, the 2008 global financial crisis and now this, somehow these systems are, are, are able to stabilize themselves and prevent really dramatic change, even though more and more people, I think, maybe are becoming aware of the need for something really dramatic. Also, things could go in a bad direction, obviously. Um, there's a lot of indications that they might. Well, we'll talk uh, about COVID-19, hopefully towards the end of our conversation today. But let me ask you first then, 
what was your first love? Because you're talking about your interest in history of economic thought. And as you were saying that, I was kind of taking a, glass, a glance at my library and looking for this very voluminous book that I have called History, which was actually my textbook when I was taking that class back in undergrad. Uh, history of Economic Thought, this massive, massive book. Um, so was your first love then history? Was it economics? Uh, and where does unemployment in particular come, come into the picture and, and why? So, you know, my first love, like growing up, was science fiction. And, you know, that's something that I feel like the, this topic of automation um, sort of revived my love of that field and led me to, to have a more systematic reading of past um, science fiction writing. And I discovered like the, these Russian authors, the Strugatsky brothers, who wrote Roadside Picnic, which became one of my favorite movies, Stalker. But I got really into also their early writings. They have this um, set of short stories called Noon 22nd Century. That's a more kind of positive vision, as it were. Um, so science fiction was an early love that's a, that, like I said, has returned. But really, my the first intellectual topic I became interested in is critical theory. So um, Frankfurt School critical theory, like, you know, Theodore Adorno and, um, and Max Horkheimer. And there's a whole kind of history of critical thinking about capitalism, its possibilities, the kind of possibilities that are not um, realized within a capitalist economy, but that are possible for humanity. Um, and so that's sort of what initially led me to this question, why is it that in such a technologically advanced society where there's so much wealth, abundance, possibility for even more abundance, um, do people suffer from a lack of work? It's kind of a strange phenomenon in some ways. Um, and so thinking about unemployment and also, you know, in a way you could say the kind of possibility, you know, when people are unemployed, there's a kind of way that you can think there's a form of free time there. Their society is taking its free time. It's cashing out its free time in the form of unemployment for some and, of course, overwork for others. And so what, what kind of possibilities are there? A kind of free time for all and a kind of economic security within that. That that then led me into history, I guess. So you could say I started in critical theory and I, I found my way into uh, into history. But I just love history as well. I've, I've I've developed a real love for it. I teach world history. I'm really interested yeah, I, in. I'm looking at your courses yeah. right now. The first one I see here is world history since 1760. Yeah. Yeah. So we share that love for history. I've always been a history. Uh, buff, I, I love all kinds of history. Um, so the question, though, is like, why do you care about unemployment, really, personally? And why mm. should anyone care? Why should we care? Why should anyone really care? Why don't we just care about, you know, our own, you know, let's say I'm perfectly employed, I make good money, I have a good salary, I buy whatever I need, I pay my mortgage. I do my vacations. I, I do whatever I want. I feel mm. good about my economic status and stability. Why should I care about unemployment? Mm. Well, I think that's but a... first start with you, with you personally, and then <laughs> yeah. to us. Well, you know, um, my it's interesting. I think I think that we live in a world which, in which, well, right now unemployment is very high. I would say 
taking a glance at the past 30 years, you would say that um, the problem isn't only unemployment. It's also underemployment. There's a kind of general way in which, as people face very poor labor market conditions, um, and this isn't true of everyone. I mean, you know, obviously, um, uh, it would be interesting to look at tech workers and programmers. I mean, there's a whole, there's a small but very important subset of the population that's experienced a pretty dramatic growth in the demand for its labor. But of course, as I'm sure your listeners know, that's not true for everyone, right? There's many people who face um, very difficult conditions of finding work. And even myself, you know, if, if, you're, if I'm totally honest with you, like even your introduction of who I am and so on, it's very, very nice. Um, I have only a temporary position at the University of Chicago. I don't have a full-time permanent position. And now I'm moving, in fact, uh, in, the, in the fall or maybe even sooner when they open the border to Germany to take up another temporary four-year position um, at Humboldt University. And that's true of a lot of people in my position. There's just, there's been an overproduction of historians um, and many academics face the same condition that the kinds of jobs available to them are low paying, temporary jobs, often without benefits. So I am not only, you know what they, like that old um, hair loss commercial in America was like, I'm not only the president, I'm also a member, you know, <laughs> I'm not only a historian of these phenomena, I'm also someone who personally experiences this kind of world. And it is, it is in the world of education, there's many people who think, well, you know, if faculty, if the educators could run this system themselves, they would run it very differently than the administrators who currently run it. They would, there, there's a kind of way that education and research could be more enjoyable, both for those who are the practitioners of it and for um, the students. And so, uh, yeah, you can get into a whole conversation about that, but that's how it affects me personally. Um, and I think in society at large, you can see that uh, as people have been not just unemployed, and now again, very high unemployment in the US, particularly concerning because the US is kind of a unique country in that um, people's health care is tied to their employment. We're facing a pandemic in which many people are not only losing their jobs and their source of livelihood, but also you know, the security of being able to know they can go to the doctor or the emergency room if they get sick with this disease. It's really terrifying for a lot of people. Um, and, but yeah, just in general, seeing that a world of low demand for labor is a world of rising inequality. It's a world where few very powerful people have more and more power in society and aren't necessarily looking out for the larger interests of society and of working people. So I think that there's a, there's a, yeah, there's a really good reason to be interested in this. If you're thinking about social change, um, one of the, one, a book I really like, though I'm not myself, um, I don't follow this guy, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a promoter of his ideas, but there's this book by this guy, William Beveridge, who designed the British National Health Service, the NHS. And he wrote this book, uh, Full Employment in a Free Society, which I think is a really fascinating book about unemployment. And the, sub, the subtitle of this book was Misery Generates Hate. And it was all about this idea that in a society with high unemployment, high economic security, you're also going to be in a society that generates hate, that generates kind of like um, society eating itself, you know, not producing, this, not producing to its full potential in many different senses. And I think that's really important even for those who aren't facing economic insecurity to, to think about very seriously. 
Now, you mentioned that we live in a sort of a very high unemployment um, uh, environment right now due to COVID-19. Can you give us probably better uh, um, guesstimate, I guess, about what exactly that means in terms of statistics? Mm. And how's that compare historically, since you have such a good historical overview? How's it compare to, let's say, the 2008 uh, mm. dep depression or recession? How does it compare to the Great Depression of the 1930s or before that, 1880s, like before that, etc., historically yeah. speaking? That's, I mean, it's a fascinating question. I'll just say um, straight off that our concept and measure of unemployment that we have comes out of the Great Depression. Basically, during the Depression, people were debating how high unemployment was. It had all these political consequences. Some people said it was falling. Some people said it was rising. And they didn't know really how to measure it. The tools didn't really exist. So around the 1838, 1840, they developed this new statistical tool, the sample survey, where they would, you know, call up or contact a certain number of people who were supposed to be representative and ask a series of questions. And they would use that to generate an overall unemployment rate. So the truth is, we don't really have numbers like that for before 1940, right? So it's, you kind of get a series that's kind of, that emerges in the 40s and continues down to the present. And part of what I study is the fascinating history of other countries trying to adopt this new method, not just countries like, say, Germany and, you know, France, but also like India and Kenya trying to get these unemployment numbers working. And they encounter a lot of problems in doing that, in part because many people aren't really unemployed. They're underemployed. There's so many people who have kind of some work. Um, globally, only 25% uh, of the world's workforce has a um, a, a permanent job of any kind, whether temporary, uh, sorry, whether um, full-time or part-time. And what that means is that something like, you know, between half and two-thirds of the workforce globally is informal. Informal workers, it's very hard to say whether they're employed or unemployed. Um, their income earning strategies under conditions of job insecurity and income insecurity don't lead to this neat distinction between employed and unemployed. So even today, just that's a kind of a background. Like, the official unemployment, first of all, unemployment rose so quickly, like as we saw from the weekly claims that were being made that were in the, in the millions every week. Um, unemployment rose so quickly, it was unprecedented, the rate at which it rose. And what that meant is that our tools were too slow to capture them. So we knew unemployment was already very high in March, but the surveys couldn't pick it up. And it seemed like the unemployment rate was still very low, even though we knew it was very high. Then the April numbers that came out, um, at the beginning of this month, uh, showed that the unemployment rate was about 15%, which is high, but it seems like, you know, you think of the Great Depression as like 33% or something like that. Two problems here. One is that um, a lot of people didn't fully lose their jobs. They went on short-time work, so they were kind of given a small amount of work. Even if you work one hour a week, you're considered employed. So there's a larger measure that's called... Um, U6, like labor underutilization, that comes out in the same, the same um, release every month. And that number was 22%. So if you include those people, you go from 15 to short-time workers and a few other groups to 22%. But then if you look at just the number, the share of, sorry, this may be too detailed, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, but the share, if you look at the share of all people who are working, which is called the labor force participation rate, 
You have to be a member of the labor force to be employed or unemployed. That just totally plummeted. So it went from, I don't know, maybe 66% of people, uh, of adults, uh, working age people being actually working to like 50%. That suggests a much larger part of the population that lost their jobs who aren't counted in those numbers. So that's why the Federal Reserve says that probably it's closer to 30 3%, like the actual unemployment rate. But no one really knows. It's very hard to know what the real number is. Um, that's way worse, it should be said. What's going on now is significantly worse. It's happening a lot faster than it did during the Great Recession. It's probably more comparable to the Great Depression. But as I said, past before 1940, the numbers we have are attempts to reconstruct reality from available numbers. And they tend to refer more to the industrial working class rather than the working class as a whole. I don't know if that, I, I hope that helps answer your question. I think like I think a historian, that's... I gave you a kind of on the one hand, on the other hand answer. That's know? okay. That's okay. <laughs> it's okay. We, we had this conversation with data too. It, it's totally fine. Uh, so let's talk then about automation and jobs because mm -hmm. that's the gist of the matter here. And, and this alleged phenomenon called uh, technological unemployment, which uh, would not come out to as, as news to my listeners that, you know, uh, most of the time, more often than not, I have myself been also on the side of the people uh, concerned with technological unemployment. Now, uh, your work um, here that I read in preparation has made me reconsider a lot of my previous arguments, but let's take it one step at a time. And let's first start with what is automation? Mm, that's a great question. You know, I, I, I would, um, I almost feel like I would, you know, want to turn that back and ask you what you think it is. Um, because <laughs> it's a very, it turns out to have a very, it's difficult to define, right? Um, in my view, it's helpful to think of two different, kind, two different ways that technology could lead to job loss. Um, maybe in a sense, the, the simplest way is something like automation. It's like, you know, there used to be a guy who stood in the elevator and pushed the buttons, and he doesn't exist anymore. And I really like this science fiction novel by Kurt Vonnegut that's about an automated society. It was his first novel. It's called Player Piano. And he said, how do you define automation? It's when an entire job classification disappears. Poof, it's just gone. You know, people used to do something and now that no longer exists. You know, another great example is like someone used to hand twist the pretzels. You know, like when you bought a pretzel, it's twisted. Like someone used to twist it. And now a machine does that work of twisting. So there's like automation in the sense that some kind of job disappears. It's hard. It's very hard. Let me talk about the other kind of job loss through technology. So one kind is like the, the job disappears. The other one is people become more productive at doing the job. So you have people working on a car assembly line and the addition of technology is making those workers more and more productive, right? Whether in some, whether in total, more people work that job or fewer depends on how many cars people are buying, right? If, if, the increase in productivity, this is like where it gets a little complicated, but like, let's say productivity is growing at 3% per year in automobile manufacture and output is growing at 3% per year. That means that no jobs will be destroyed. Like 
all of the increase in output is accounted for by increases in productivity. If output was growing at 3% per year and productivity was growing at 2% per year, employment would rise by 1% even though you have this new technology. On the other hand, if output were growing by 1% per year and productivity were growing by 3% per year, people would be shed. Like you'd have more and more cars produced, but job lo- there'd be job loss. Is that because job classifications are disappearing? No, it's not. It's just because we don't need as many people doing car assembly as to, to, to meet the growing demand for cars. That jobs classification still exists, but there's few people doing that work. This is very hard. I find it very hard to communicate this often. And I'm not sure how good a job I'm doing now. But if you just think about it, like, you know, the majority of people used to be engaged in growing food. Like, food is now much more technologically advanced. Are there no farmers? No, there's many farmers. But we need many fewer people that do farming for society. Um, people used to, in manufacturing, used to be a much higher percentage of the workforce in manufacturing. Just the number of people making boots, like the share of all of society making shoes used to be really high and it's fallen over time. Is it because no one makes shoes anymore? No, it's just that making shoes has become much high, more highly productive. So it's very hard to distinguish between these types of job loss through technology. And what the forecasters do is they say that there's, um, there's, um, there's sort of labor augmenting. There's like technologies that work with people and technologies that replace people. And all of the forecasts are about trying to decide which category different things fall into. So let's say someone, you know, we're replacing cashiers, you might say, with these like automated checkout systems. But there's still a person there watching checkout machines. Does that mean cashiering is gone as an occupation? Or is each cashier now working for checkout machines? It's kind of hard to say to categorize that work. Well, but let's take your example here. Yeah, that makes total sense. But let's just take your example here and and take it a little further. Because, of course, you had five or six cashiers and now you have one person watching over five or six self-checkout machines. Mm -hmm. But not only that, you have now the Amazon self-checkout stores where you don't even have one person watching, but basically you have those face uh, recognition AI-enabled cameras which monitor you and you don't even have to self-check. You just grab whatever you want off the shelf and you walk out. And uh, then they charge your credit card because you have installed this app and they have your information, they have your facial recognition, they have your credit card information. So the moment you walk out of the store, they charge you. And of course, so you you don't even need one person anymore. And you don't even need necessarily people to stack the shelves even because we know something like 90% on average of all the work in Amazon warehouses is done by robots. And that's growing too, by the way, because they have a couple of pilots where that work is now up to 95 or 96% or something like that. So what about that? Mm-hmm. Isn't that the case where sort of like the, the jobs are completely, as Kurt Vonnegut, Vonnegut said, you know, disappeared, Oof. made obsolete? Yeah. No, I think that would be a great, a great example of the difference. If there's the self-checkout machines and one person is manning five, Maybe you could say the cashier's work is being augmented by technology. But if there's a real like Amazon Go type place, then it's, it's um, being obliterated, right? And you won't, 
and the way to think about that is like, no matter how many um, Amazon stores get opened, Amazon Go stores, no cashiers will be hired. Whereas in the other case, if you have one cashier for every five registers, the more of those stores you open, the more cashiers you'll hire. So that captures the distinction perfectly. And so the question is, which one's happening, you know, and which one's likely to happen over time? Um, it's very hard when you say, you know, if you say something like 90% of the work in a Amazon warehouse is done by machines, it's very hard to describe what that metric means, you know, like what is the, what is the nine, how are you measuring the share of work? You know? I'm using their stats yeah, coming up from their own, to know. like it's all about how you define what is work in a unit yeah. of work, right? Which is very tricky. I get your point, but I'm just mm -hmm. using their metrics. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, in this moment of the COVID-19 pandemic, Amazon hired like tens of thousands, if not, yeah, I think like they said a hundred thousand people workers. or something. Yeah. So yeah, it's the, and yeah, we could talk more specifically about um, sort of retail, transportation, and trade, and what's happening in that field. Um, the number of workers in those in those fields state has stabilized in the U.S. So there aren't fewer retail and where and um, wholesale workers than there were in the past. In in warehouses, there's more and more workers than there were before. But yeah, it's complicated how things play out. And I guess something I'd like to talk to you about is we have to think about the difference between automatable, like the feasible technology and the economically rational technology. That's an important distinction, but we can, I right, know we can talk right. about that Right, that that's, a, that's a very crucial distinction. Uh, but let's, let's perhaps zoom out a little bit and, and first of all, lay out your argument here because I think I didn't approach it in the best possible way to make it clear. Mm. So your claim, basically, your thesis is that uh, both in your paper and also in a paper that you said you're highly sympathetic towards that I read as preparation for this interview, your thesis is that uh, automation is a red herring and that uh, unemployment is not a result of automation per se. Mm -hmm. that, that even the term technological unemployment uh, itself as a suggestion that unemployment is a result of technology is inappropriate or improper to use because that causation between technology and unemployment is not necessarily accurately representing what's happening right now. Yeah. And you know, so that's a very strong thesis in the face of someone like me or my audience in general. So I, I'd like you to, to, to walk us through that logic as much as and, and in detail as you can. Yeah, great. I'd love to do that. So the, the starting point here is to say, yes, there's a big problem of job creation. It's huge, right? I mean, not just in a country like the United States, but even more on the world scale, there's a huge problem of job creation. So there's a, there's a big problem. There's, there's many people who need to find work and are having trouble finding it. And when you read these accounts of automation, they're able to point toward, to real phenomena that I'm not disputing, like um, the most famous example is like the what's called the fall in the labor share of income, like the the the, the share of all of GDP that's paid out as wages or salaries to workers is falling, and that's redounding to the benefit of those who own assets or who own businesses, right? Um, so that's a really important trend: the fall in the labor share of income that's associated with you know um, 
with uh, rising economic inequality. Um, unemployment rates are higher than they used to be. Recoveries are more jobless, which means that like many jobs are lost in recession and it takes a much longer and longer time for the economy to recover and generate new jobs. So all of those trends are real. And I call that labor under demand or a decline in the demand for labor. That's a true phenomenon. And the question is how you explain it. The automation theorists, or what I call the automation discourse, says that the explanation for this phenomenon is technological change. Not just technological change, but an acceleration of technological change, right? We live in an era of brilliant new technologies, the second machine age, the fourth industrial revolution, and so on. And, you know, in a way, I find it all really interesting. Like, look, we're talking on Zoom. Like, we couldn't have done this uh, just a few years ago. Everyone has smartphones. There's huge changes in consumer technologies and computing possibilities. My own father was a researcher in AI um, in the 1980s who moved into the startup culture. So my brother is a, is a game designer, computer game designer in the Bay Area. So this is my, I, I, I'm not, you know, it would be crazy to say that big changes aren't happening in technology. The question is whether that big technological change is the driver of this labor under demand problem. And that's what I'm disputing, right? So the reason why is like, when you look at just productivity growth statistics, that's sort of how you'd measure, even if job, even if whole job classifications were disappearing, it would show up in labor productivity because the remaining workers would seem to be producing more and more, right? Even if a lot of their fellow workers were just being you know, shipped out, like it would show up in higher productivity growth rates. And what we see is, first of all, in manufacturing, which is the sector. Yeah, that just to make that a little more clear here, just mm -hmm. like we were discussing the example of uh, one cashier who replaces five cashiers by overseeing those self-checkout machines. Basically, in this case, we would have the productivity of that worker increased by a factor of five mm -hmm. because you used to have five cashiers who you had to line up for now you have one guy who is overseeing seeing five self-checkout places so you're saying is like okay you can uh make those four workers unemployed but then the the stats would represent that productivity gain by probably 500 is that 500% or well, a factor of five? How, how do you measure mm -hmm. that? But by a big jump yeah. in productivity, obviously. Great question. So yeah, you really have to understand what productivity growth is. And I think it's, 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 um, it's, it, it's, an, it's a really important concept. So it's just a measure of output per worker or output per worker hour. There's two ways to do it, right? Um, and so the problem, it's like, you might think that cashier is doing, yeah, a 500% increase in productivity. In reality, cashiering is just one aspect of, say, retail work. So that, um, that, you know, workers also, as you pointed out, like stock the shelves and clean and do all these different kinds of jobs. And so um, even though that worker's one task is getting much more productive, on the whole, it's generally like... Um, you know, like an 8% or 10% rate of productivity growth which uh, is huge. year would be huge. The yeah. reality is much lower. Like In economic terms, 8% or 10% is like almost unheard of, right? Exactly. It's like gargantuan. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, far from 500%, just 10% is very right. fast. 
Um, yeah. The reality today is that the productivity growth in like the 2010s was, you know, under 2%. So, and what we see is like, if we just look at over time, productivity growth rates just aren't accelerating, they're falling. Productivity growth rates are getting smaller and smaller each time, uh, each decade, as it were. And so what we're seeing is like, yeah, productivity slowdown. And part of that is because um, more workers used to work in industry, which is the easiest to automate, the easiest industry to introduce machines into. Um, and even in industry, productivity growth rates are falling. And in this last decade, the decade that was supposed to be the decade of automation had like the lowest rates of productivity growth in the post-war era. Um, outside of industry, outside of manufacturing, uh, productivity growth rates are even lower. So in the service sector, it's typical for productivity growth to be 0.7% per year or 1.2% per year or something like that. So very, very slow. That, that implies productivity doubling at 1% per year, productivity doubles every 72 years, right? At 2%, it doubles every 36 years. At 10%, it doubles every seven years. So it's a big difference um, in growth rates. So yeah, why is productivity growth falling? That would be one question we could look at. Why is it that in spite of all of these huge technologies, productivity growth is falling? The other question is, how could the demand for labor be falling? How could there be all these problems of labor demand if productivity is growing more slowly? And my answer, which you know, you'll see in other economics literature as well, is that the economy is stagnating. So it's the fact that the economy is growing more slowly. The economy as a whole is growing more slowly. It actually means that it's difficult for our economy, which is sort of stagnating and less dynamic than ever before, to deal with a small amount of productivity increase. It used to be in the past that productivity growth was higher, but the economy was more dynamic. So it was churning more and more people through jobs. They were being expelled from older kinds of work and entering to new kinds of work at a much faster pace. The churn is much lower today, but it's very hard for the economy to deal with it because the economy is growing so slowly. So it's a slower pace of productivity growth, but it's more difficult for the economy to absorb people who are losing their jobs. So, so I can get the idea uh, 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 of the second argument that you just described, but, but let us walk us please through the first argument about why is it that we see so much automation? We see computers mm. which move along exponential growth. We see, I have a friend who lives in Germany and who, who, who basically his job is to go into a factory or in a plant in somewhere work there for six months with robotics and all kinds of stuff. And when he leaves, usually 50%, sometimes more than 50%, sometimes 60 or 70% mm -hmm. of the employees are unemployed when he's done, because basically his job is to automate as much of the process as possible. So we have on the one hand, this phenomenon that happens, and he tra travels all over the world to do that. Actually, interesting thing is mostly outside of Germany, I think, rather than inside of Germany, maybe because they're already so much ahead of everyone else. But, but yet, so that's happening. And yet what you're telling us that productivity is not growing somehow not so very much. It's only, yeah. yeah, it's only like, you know, 0.9% or something like that, right? So how do we square these things, trends? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. So let me just point out a kind of interesting paradox to you. The 
International Federation of Robotics puts out these numbers every year or so. They're a little hard to get yearly unless you're a subscriber, but um, some of them are publicly released. And it's they they put out these numbers: robots per ten thousand manufacturing workers in industry. And who are the top countries? South Korea, Germany, Germany Korea, and what Japan? Japan are the top. Yeah. Actually, Singapore is also really high, but it's you know right. it's less. Maybe Taiwan too. Mm -hmm. So you have those are the top countries, right? Look at the share of their workforces that are in manufacturing. The U.S. is way behind, by the way. It's like 200 uh, robots per per um, 10,000 workers in manufacturing. South Korea is like 700, six or 700 robots per 10,000. If you right, look so at the paradox you're taking us towards here is that just to make it clear is that somehow paradoxically the countries that have the largest numbers of robots per 10,000 workers also have the largest share of global manufacturing capacity. Is that the, yeah. the well, paradox? They have they, a much larger share of their workforce is in manufacturing. So in yeah. Germany, Japan, South Korea, it's like 15% of their workforce is in manufacturing. In the right. US, it's like eight or not eight or 9%. Same is true in the UK, which has even fewer robots. So the countries that are the most deindustrialized are way behind in terms of adopting robotics compared to those who are. So what's the explanation of the paradox? It's that countries like Japan and Germany are major players in international manufacturing production. And Sweden is another actually a country with a high degree of roboticization. And those robots help those companies in those firms help companies compete internationally, right? They have an outside share of global manufacturing value added, like global manufacturing production. They have an outside share of global exports. And what that means is that um, robots help those companies keep jobs, basically. Uh, and yeah, that's what you'll see is that like in at least there's been articles about Japan and uh, Sweden where they interview these workers and the workers are like, the robots help keep our jobs because they help keep us competitive against these low-wage workers. That's obviously not going to be true everywhere. The thing that I'm really sort of concerned about, I guess you could say, is that historically, um, one of the major ways for countries to take part in international manufacturing is through sewing, like apparel and shoe wear. Right. I mean, we know this, like all of our clothing says it's from, you know, somewhere in Vietnam uh, and Bangladesh. Yeah, and exactly. And China. Right. Obviously. So um, what we're seeing is that sewing is actually a real technological laggard historically, like the last major invention was the Singer sewing machine. Um, <laughs> and you just have armies of people, right, like sewing with these old machines, very old technologies. It seems like new robotics technologies will allow sewing to look more like other industries or electronic assembly to look more like other industries. It'll kind of catch them up to the global standard. And that could an annihilate a lot of jobs if those technological laggards kind of catch up to the rule. Um, and that could make it very difficult for countries like Vietnam and Bangladesh, for example, to kind of reproduce the strategy that China produced. So I'm not saying this isn't happening uh, everywhere. It's that it's in more localized spaces that these that these tech, these brilliant technologies could have really big effects. But even that could have a huge effect. Um, those are highly competitive industries. So, But so the strange thing that you said there is that workers in places like Japan, Korea, and even Sweden 
know that robots and robotizing their manufacturing and production processes protects them rather than hurts them, which is a very counterintuitive, very kind of paradoxical, mm. shocking maybe even to some degree uh, revelation, uh, especially like, I don't know, in Canada here in Ontario where I live, we have a ton, a ton of manufacturing, uh, well, now it's not no longer a ton, but we used to have a ton of like car, GM, Ford, all the auto industry production was mm -hmm. sort of together with Detroit and all that stuff, which has now been decimated. And so those workers, they've always perceived the robots as the enemies. Is that not the case? I and mean, why you know, is, why is this sort of dichotomy mm -hmm. of perceptions? Why is it like Japanese and Swedish and Koreans think robots protect them and here in North America we think robots hurt us? Part of it is the phenomenon I was saying. It's like international competition is really tough. And in order for companies to survive in competition, especially if they're in high-wage countries, they have to use robots. And the more robots they use, the better they are able to compete internationally. It should be said that the other really important phenomenon is that um, workers in a lot of European countries and in Japan have much higher job security. So they're told like over the long term, maybe these jobs will go away, but um, we will keep you employed. You have like permanent employment. You can't be laid off for this. And so it makes it just a lot easier for workers to accept it because they don't see it as affecting their job security. That definitely, um, it, uh, you might say that that would make it harder to adopt these technologies because you can't get rid of the workers, but it actually encourages the firms to also find ways to use technologies that, that actually augment workers rather than, uh, you know, augment their capabilities rather than replace them. So it's definitely like a complicated um, process. Okay, so uh, let me... Let me see if I can bring a couple of quotes here from the papers that that uh, that you have referred to me here. So, first of all, the paper that you said you're very sympathetic towards says uh, in the very beginning that in contrast to the popular view that technology is destroying more jobs than ever, our finding suggests that is not the case. The period from 2010 to 2015 saw approximately six technology-related jobs created for every 10 lost, which was the highest ratio, meaning lowest share of jobs lost to technology of any period since 1950 to 1960s. So now explain this to us because this is kind of, again, counterintuitive. So mm -hmm. on the one hand, you say technology today the, the popular view that technology today is destroying more jobs than ever is not the case. On the other hand, you're saying that six, uh, that, that six technology-related jobs were created compared to every 10 that it destroyed. Mm. So we're still in the negative. So it's still destroying oh, more. Mm -hmm. It's still destroying more than it's creating, right? So let me just say, just for the listeners that, you know, that's, that's, um, you're quoting from Atkinson and Wu, this article, false alarmism, not my own work, though I'm very, as you said, very sympathetic to it. I think part of it is just that a lot of jobs are being created for reasons that aren't 
due to technology, right? So it's not the sum total effect. It's like you can look at technology's effects on job creation and destruction, but then there's other other sources of job creation and destruction. It is true that job creation has been very low in this period, but again, it's mostly because output, like the the um, the rate of growth of the economy, was very slow. It was the slowest. Two thousand ten to two thousand nineteen was the worst business cycle for growth in post-war history. It was incredibly slow, um, and yeah, that means that uh, technologies, even a little bit of technological change, was very hard for that society to handle. Why is that happening? You know, that's a whole. Yeah, we can talk. We can talk about that. And I think again, it gets to this problem of the difference between technological feasibility. Like when you go to the trade show and you look at the technologies, you kind of marvel at what a machine can do. It's not the same as a company actually implementing that technology in a space, right? In a in a production space, and also um, usually in order for companies to realize the gains from their investments in technology, they have to be able to really expand production. They only benefit from those technologies if they can increase their scale pretty massively to take advantage of cost savings. Like cost savings often only um, are realized at scale. But if the economy is growing very slowly, and that means that operations are growing slowly or growing very quickly, you have to um, undercut your competitors and take a loss for a very long time. It makes it a much more risky environment for um, big investments of that type. And what we see is like just that the capital stock, like companies' actual investment in expanding their equipment structures and software is happening in a very slow pace. They're not investing. What are they doing with their money? They're buying back their own stocks. They're pumping up their stock prices and contributing in that way to um, economic inequality, right? Pumping up the value of assets, even as wages uh, stagnate. So it's just unfortunate. In a way, it's like a different world. Maybe we could see a lot of these technologies. Also in a different world, I mean, maybe this goes beyond what we're talking about now, but you know, a world that really actually saw it as important to get rid of drudgery and get rid of, you know, meaningless tasks would, would, would handle these things differently. But in our world, the implementation of these technologies has to be pushed through the frame or the prism of economic uh, rationality. And that, that's where I think the, the tech, I think that's where the automation story sort of, you know, goes off. But is that the, the ever-present incentive of the of the investor or the capital owner uh, uh, to replace rather than to uh, enable and to enhance? Because I mean, that, and that's kind of a general uh, sort of uh, idea about artificial intelligence, which we'll talk maybe a little bit more about later. And and the idea is: Are we sort of empowering and enhancing ourselves? Or are we replacing ourselves? And as far as the context goes in the sort of business, economic, pro-capitalist world, in that context at least, isn't it always the case that the incentive is to replace rather mm -hmm. than to empower and to enhance? Because usually that's where you realize the profit. Yeah, it's definitely true that... Um businesses replace workers, but they often have to hire other work, more fewer skilled workers, right, um, to do the jobs that are being gotten rid of. So there's a, there's a phenomenon, which is important. I think often when economists intersect with automation stories, like the discourse of automation, 
they do a little bit of a bait and switch because there's an economic topic called skill bias technical change, which is this phenomenon that of skill upgrading. Like if you look at the occupational structure in the United States, the number, the share of workers who can be classified as managers, professionals, and technicians is crazy. It's almost half the entire workforce is classified that way. So you see this phenomenon of skill upgrading. Um, maybe you know that like uh, wages have been stagnating for a very large section of the population. So even a lot of people who are classified as managers, professionals, and technicians are not really seeing um, very, very uh, rapid uh, wage increases. It's really at the very top that those increases in wages are happening. So it's just to say that there is replacement, but there's also upgrading. You know, the, the phenomena go together. They're not as opposed as you're suggesting. Um, replacing certain kind of tasks also means taking on more workers who do other things. And, you know, what happens as the economy evolves always through technological change and, um, and economic dynamism is that, you know, over the long term, we get a more diversified economy. There's fewer people doing each task, but there's more and more tasks to be done, right? That's how you get this kind of very highly diversified economy. And that process is kind of breaking down. It's not because technologies are suddenly taking off and being implemented into production at a faster pace than ever before. It just doesn't show up in the numbers. Some people will say the numbers are wrong, and we could talk about that, but it just doesn't show up. They would have to be so wrong for that to be the correct explanation. So the other part, the other possible explanation, which is the one I adopt, is that it's not that technology is being implemented at a radically new pace. It's that the economy can't keep up with even slow rate of technological change because it's just it's stagnating. And then you have to look at, you know, that is an interesting phenomenon that I think for for people who are primarily interested in technology, it's kind of mind blowing to think about. Like, why is the economy stagnating? Why is there all this trouble? When there are all these brilliant new technologies, why why is the economy doing more and more poorly? That's a that's mm-hmm. a really interesting question. Yeah, and we'll talk about that later because it's a very important question. But I still want to hang on longer here. Okay, yeah. And and to make this perhaps clearer, I'll just read your thesis of your own uh, paper that I read, and uh, it talks about it refers about the the sort of what's maybe the prevalent. Uh, discourse about technological unemployment, which basically goes through the claim that, you know, technology creates unemployment, hence it's called technological unemployment. Mm -hmm. And you say, this automation discourse rests on four main propositions. First, workers are already being displaced by ever more advanced machines, resulting in rising levels of technological unemployment. Second, this displacement is a sign that we are on the verge of achieving a largely automated society in which nearly all work will be performed by self-moving machines and intelligent computers. Third, automation should entail humanity's collective liberation from toil, but because we live in a society where most people work in order to live, this dream may well turn out to be a nightmare. And fourth, therefore, the only way to prevent a mass unemployment catastrophe is to provide a universal basic income, breaking the connection between the incomes people earn and the work that they do as a way to inaugurate a new society. And then you go on to say that, um, I will join the critics of automation discourse in arguing that this is not the case. 
However, along the way, I will also criticize the critics, both for producing explanations of low labor demand that only apply in high-income countries and for failing to produce anything like a radical vision of social change that is adequate to the scale of the problems we now confront. Indeed, it should be said from the outset that I am more sympathetic to the left automation theorists than to their critics. Okay. So how do we slice this now? So the left automation critics say that there is this thing called technological unemployment. Technology, more of it causes more unemployment. You say that's not the case. And yet you say you're more sympathetic with them than with their critics. Mm -hmm. And of course, first of all, let's talk about their usual historical critics. And that's the critics who say, look, there is nothing new in those uh, people's concerns. You know, since the time of the Industrial Revolution, the Luddites have always claimed that uh, machines will make everyone unemployed. Yet, if we look at the last 250 years, that's not been the case. So, nothing will be different, they say, this time around. It's just all a big red herring. Mm -hmm. And those are new Luddites who are making the same old rehashed argument for the last 250 years over and over again. So where's the, is there a problem with that? Yeah, that's totally wrong. I mean, it's wrong because basically what those people are really saying is that even though technologies like cause productivity growth that tends to get rid of jobs, the economy grows fast enough to create new jobs for to replace those that are lost. And that's just not happening. And on the world scale, it's a really ridiculous claim. Like, you know, in um, the, 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 in the world as a whole, so many people have trouble finding work. It's enormous. As I said, you know, the, the it's the majority condition, like, so many people all over the world are doing jobs that could be immediately replaced by existing technologies. Think about all the people who sell goods like uh, food and, um, you know. Especially young people, maybe, yeah, I would say. on the street. I mean, they're just selling stuff on the street without refrigeration, without, you know, they're driving stuff from town to town on the back of motorcycles and bicycles. Um, people are sorting through trash by hand. I mean, the vast majority of jobs that exists today could be replaced by, you know, mid 20th century technologies. And people do them because they're trying to make a little work for themselves. There's a massive, massive global problem of under demand and uh, for labor. And so the idea that, um, you know, things just work out, you know, and the economy just creates jobs. It's just, uh, I think it's, it's, um, it's like, uh, yeah, it's like a Voltaire. It's like, what do you call that? We live in the best of all possible worlds. It's just not true. That's not true. So, but the, the reason why they're wrong, just to specify, is that the economy is just not growing fast enough to make new jobs for those that are lost. That's the problem with that account. There's another so critique yeah. that you know you might be interested in by this economist at Northwestern, so also in Chicago, Robert Gordon, who wrote a book called The Rise and Fall of American Growth. His claim is that the internet technology revolution already happened. It was over basically by 2010. Um, we saw its effects in the adoption of computers in the workplace. He says uh, it wasn't as big a change as past changes. Like if you compare computers to airplanes and cars and com you know, combustion engines, the total economic effect was much smaller 
And he thinks it's basically ended. Like companies have done as much as they can with information technology, and this wave is over. That's a that's a critique that says not that not that technological job loss is always happening, but new jobs are always being created. It's saying the technology story is running down. And that is also true. It's true that productivity growth is, as I said, slowing down. I don't think that's because technologies are, um, we just run out of new technologies. I think it's an economic problem. Companies aren't investing. Um, there's a low profit rate. Uh, and that means that the economy just isn't taking on these things. So it's an economic question, not a technological one. I don't know if that makes sense. Those are two possible critiques. It makes sense, but but it's kind of, again, counterintuitive. Many of the things we're talking today about are very counterintuitive to the normal yeah. sort of dominant ideas in, in the technological, technophile, entrepreneurial, singularitarian, you know, transhumanist community. So, so which is why this mm-hmm. conversation is so useful, I believe, for me personally, but also in general. Uh, so so let's let's break these things uh, before we go to the left critique. Let's let's break these things apart. So so the first part of your critique to the to to the, of, of the people to the right was saying that look in the past the the jobs were destroyed by technology, but we had such an overwhelmingly fast pace of growth in the economy in general that we more than made up for that. Mm-hmm. And that's your the flaw of your argument. Then another part of, of, of the criticism there comes from the person that Robert you just Jordan. quoted, yeah. who says that, that the, the, the and, and that's kind of, let's go into this a little deeper here, because he's claiming that technology has mostly played itself out in terms of economic impact. And if you look at it, historically speaking, and compare it to the previous fundamental paradigm shifts like the engine, the industrial revolution, what have you, it's a relatively smaller uh, impact overall in economic terms than before. Mm-hmm. So so these both two both both of these claims can come as a shock or as a surprise or or you'll get a lot of pushback from my community. So yeah. so so tell me why is it first that or what is the evidence in supporting that the total impact was lower overall mm-hmm. than in the pre- than the previous paradigm shifts. And secondly, we are constantly told that, you know, we are just at the bottom of the exponential curve, that, you know, all the biggest accelerating growth is ahead of us. Yeah. So how can you ever possibly make the claim that it's played itself out? Mm-hmm. So these are the two things we need to clarify here, please. Yeah. So um, the... Robert Gordon's story, and again, I like I said, I'm a critic of both of the critics, right? So, but the Robert Gordon story is like, just look at the numbers. I mean, just look at, I was quoting to you these numbers before, just look at productivity growth. You'll just see it was way faster in the past. Like, you know, yeah, productivity growth was just faster, you know, in past decades than it is in this one. So he's saying just measured in those economic terms, um, uh, you know, the impact of the current transformation is lower. And he just says, look, think if you think about it this way, just think, 100 years ago, most people had no running water. They had no electricity. They had no, you know what I mean? Like, if you think about, they lived in the countryside. They lived very dispersed from other people. And then transport them 100 years later, his decade of, his 100 years of big change is 1870 to 1970. He says, look at the changes that happened then. 
All these people moved to cities. They became literate. They learned how to read and write. And they got cars and they got refrigerators and they got airplanes. Like if you just look at the sum total of things that happened, it makes sense that a transition from a very technologically um, underdeveloped society on the mass to a highly where a lot of people have access to that stuff is huge. Taking an already technologically advanced society like that and adding one new technology to it doesn't, can't be as big as the initial transition. That's sort of like his argument. But let me say about all, I mean, I disagree with that because he, he's not thinking about why the economy is slow. He's attributing economic slowdown to technological exhaustion. I don't agree with that. The other problem with all of these people is that when you say to them, what should we do? What's the solution to these problems? They just say like, educate people. But I think like tons of people are getting educations and they're having trouble finding work. And that's even a way bigger problem in, um, in developing countries where many people get educations and they have trouble finding jobs and, you know, people selling fruit on the street. This guy who started the Arab Spring, Muhammad Bubazi, who lit himself on fire, he was an educated person who was selling fruit, right? And it was the indignity of that situation that had a huge effect on what he did. So I just find that that kind of simplistic story, educate people and you'll get rid of the problem. That's to me, um, very unrealistic. Okay, so let's talk about now the other end of the spectrum here. So, so you saying that there's problems with people on the right, usually, mm-hmm. broadly speaking, who come up critiquing that. But then there's problem with people on the left too, because people on the left generally tend to go, look, automation, exponential growth, accelerating disruptive change, the machines are coming, you know, the, the fourth industrial revolution we're finished, we're over, like the machines are coming, they're taking our jobs, we have no future, Uh, everyone will be unemployed in terms of like, we have no future in terms of jobs, everyone will be unemployed, no matter if you're a manual worker or an intellectual worker, most jobs will be made obsolete. So, and therefore they say technological unemployment. So what's the problem with that reasoning? Well, they're, I mean, you know, it's just, they're, they're wrong. I mean, just for the same reason, it's just that productivity growth isn't happening as quickly as it was before. And the problem of labor demand is not due to this dramatic change in um, productivity growth rates, which would which would correspond to a new era of automation. It's rather that the economy is slowing down. That has big implications for what you can do. So the reason why I like the left automation theorists is because they're saying, look, you know, they're not saying human beings are finished. They're saying capitalism is finished. They're saying this world where uh, the, the economy is organized around wage work, that's what's finished. And they're, they're looking at this famous, um, they're using the work of this famous socialist, uh, Vasily Leontiev, who was this economist who won the Nobel Prize. Um, he, there's this other guy, Norbert Wiener, who was like the father of cybernetics. Cybernetics, yeah. They both thought, this automation is happening and it means capitalism is done. Wage work is done and we need to transition to a different kind of society. There's this amazing um, black Detroit auto worker, James Boggs, who wrote a book called The American Revolution, who I quote him as well. He also had this idea in the 60s, like automation is here, capitalism is finished. I'm very sympathetic to that stuff because I think they're thinking about how we'd reorganize society to take advantage of big technological changes that have happened. The problem is that 
And I think big technological change has happened and it could be used to make people, you know, a world where people work a lot less, where they feel secure, they have access to all these things they need and they can like, uh, like Star Trek, right? Like in Star Trek, like they can boldly explore the universe without really worry or the galaxy without really worrying about how they're going to make a living. That's a very appealing vision to me. Um, and my friend Manu Sadia wrote this book, Treconomics. That's a beautiful exploration of like the actual, you should have him on, by the way, you know, uh, exploration of, um, of Star Trek technologies. The problem is that that's not really what's happening. And it means we're going to have to change society a bit differently to take advantage of those technologies. Okay, okay. So, so before we get to what to do about it and what's really happening, let's yeah. see. Because the people from the right again would say, look, your argument is not new either. You know, people in the late 19th, early 20th century were saying, uh, look, we're going to be, uh, or not your argument, but that sure. argument's been used before. In the 19th century, early 20th century, we were thinking all jobs are going to go obsolete. Mm -hmm. All It's all going to be automated. And, you know, we've heard crying wolf, people cry wolf before, and it never happened. Yeah. It's how, just already how do we happened. know this time it's different? What is different about the 21st century yeah. that was not the case for the early 20th century? So there's this um, amazing social theorist and critic and urban historian and you know contemporary theorist, Mike Davis. And he's become very famous again because he wrote this book, I think 15 years ago, called The Monster at Our Door that was all about the possibility of a global pandemic. Um, he wrote this other book, uh, around the same time called The Planet of Slums. And, and there's this line there that I, that I really liked where he says, um, the, 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 triage of, the triage of humanity has already happened. The disaster that people with the automation theory are saying is going to happen in the future, it's already happened. We already live in a world, like I said, where many, many people can't find jobs and are doing work that's totally technologically obsolete. The number of, you know, the, the, like we live in a world where our capacity to produce food, we can produce so much food that, um, you know, farmers rely on people consuming more meat to absorb all of the grain that we can produce, you know, and that's causing its own big ecological problems. Many of the people in the world who are hungry are not people living in urban areas, although this is really different now under the COVID-19 pandemic situation. There's many people suffering from hunger in urban areas. But historically, in the past 30 years or so, most of the malnourished people are people in rural areas. They're farmers who can't grow enough food to, to feed themselves, right? So it's like the story of a world where all these jobs disappear, it's really was agriculture. It's the industrial revolution. Agriculture already made that a reality. We already live in a world where tons of people have a lot of trouble finding work and where we really have to do something about it, especially facing climate change. That's already our world. So there's no need to look to the future and say this is going to happen. It's the world we live in. And, you know, in places like the U.S., like I said, this problem of labor under demand, falling labor shares of income, rising economic inequality, higher unemployment rates, that's all been happening for a while. You don't need to point to some future incredible technological change to say this is going to happen. This is already happening all around the world. It's not due to a technology around the corner. It's due to these other economic as well as technological reasons. And we have to do something about it. Education isn't enough. I don't know. That's my pitch. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so then let's assume that what you say is correct. And that the, the, the cause, 
the cause of unemployment or growing unemployment is not the introduction of more innovative technology, but rather the fact that the, the rate of growth is stagnating or has been stagnating for a decade or two, maybe longer. Longer, 50 years. 50 years since the 70s. That's what I thought. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so what do we do about it? Let's say your diagnosis is correct. Then what's the treatment then? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that there are a number of options. Or maybe let's, sorry to interrupt here, yeah. but because I know what you're going to say. So let oh. me, let me make you talk about first of all, what you think is not the treatment. Right. Tell me why you don't believe that universal basic income mm. may be the treatment. So I, I think that universal basic income is one of two proposed solutions that is very interesting and worth thinking about. And I never, I think that especially on the left, people have a tendency to sort of say like, oh, you think that? You're so stupid. You know what I mean? There's a kind of like, uh, and I don't, I don't like that attitude. So I think it's really great that people are getting into basic income. And I think it's a really fascinating solution for a number of reasons. And, you know, I'll just lay out some of the positives, right? The biggest positive to me is that it's not means tested. So universal in the universal basic income as opposed to means tested. It just says, uh, look, you know, you deserve this as a human being, right? You deserve this income. You deserve a part of society's wealth and its production just because of, you know, existing. All human beings should be guaranteed this. I think that's totally beautiful. And it's a recognition of what we've achieved as a society, right? That a scarcity of jobs is on the other hand, like a great abundance of goods. Like we really could meet people's basic needs at very low cost. Um, and that would be a beautiful uh, thing. So that's, that's the positive side. The worry is that um, the, it's like the automation story has to be true for that to be the way we get to a much better world. And there's a few reasons why I say that. One is that um, it would have to be the case that society really is just growing at this incredible pace. We could transition more and more of that income growth to the basic income. And over time, more and more of what people buy would, would occur through that. If the growth of the economy is slowing down, like trying to raise the basic income is going to come up against these really hard limits of like, yeah, profitability of getting workers to work, um, conflicts in the economy. Uh, in, you know, just like we're seeing today in economic crises, governments are going to say, we have to cut this back. We can't afford this, right? We live in decades of austerity. I mean, look at the world we live in is pretty crazy. Like governments have been cutting back on healthcare in a lot of ways for a very long time. And now we face this pandemic. So those are the kind of concerns that I, that I have. It's that, um, yeah, in a slow-growing economy, it's harder to get to the post-scarcity world with basic income. The other thing that's kind of scary to me is that there's these right-wing proponents of basic income, like Charles Murray, who's a very, you know, I think he's a very bad man. He's a, you know, he's a racist. He writes this bell curve stuff, which I disagree with really strongly. And he thinks that we could use a basic income to sort of establish a floor, get rid of the, get rid of the welfare state, replace it with basic income, have this income floor that stops poverty from happening, but he thinks it should not be allowed to stop inequality from growing. So he has a whole program that has a basic income and rising inequality. And that's what I worry about. So yeah. for him, basic income is a way of destroying the state or 
removing as much power of, from the state as possible. Yeah, which you know, I'm I I'm I'm like a, someone interested in radical democracy. I'm interested in devolving power to people and away from the state, in a sense. So I kind of agree with that, but I disagree with the form in which he's proposing to do that because his suggestion is one that would, um, yeah, lead to a society in which basically. Poor people get just enough money to survive and they can spend it as they want. And if they want more, they have to go to these like private, in his view, like Christian religious charities in order to get more than that. Yeah. And then and then the people who are very wealthy would be allowed to accumulate, you know, to the sky. So we would still have Bezos being a trillionaire in six years and in in this in the world that that Murray wants to live in. And that's very concerning to me. Right. So so you have basically an agreement on the left for one reason in support of universal basic income and their criticism towards people who don't think that's a good idea is like, as you said, oh, you're very stupid or maybe selfish or what have you. And then on the, re on the right, you have support uh, of people because they perceive UBI as a, as a means to weakening or even destroying perhaps the state as well, the... Yeah, yeah, the the welfare state, but even the state as an institution, because mm -hmm. uh, you know that that's part of it. So and and that kind of explains why, for example, I got interviewed by these two podcasters uh, from Florida, who were two very nice guys. One was Democrat and one was a Republican, and both of them couldn't agree on pretty much anything except for Andrew Young. And and both of them kind of were supporting him, and that was, oh, of course, during the primaries and all that. Uh, and, and so, of course, Andrew Yang was one of those sort of high visibility people who first picked up this baton, publicly speaking, and came out in support of UBI mm -hmm. uh, as a political platform, if you will. Uh, so, and, and whereas your own personal concern here is that, look, we have a, uh, you're saying is governments don't have an infinite capacity to print money in order to support the necessary level of uh, uh, sort of humane, long-term sustainable uh, uh, universal basic income. They can do like a one-time, you know, print out and help here and there for a period of time. But on the, in the long run, the only way this could be sustainable is if you have economic growth that could sustain this. Yeah. And what you're saying is, but we haven't had the economic growth. And not only that, but it's actually diminishing as mm -hmm. we go forward rather than growing. Mm -hmm. So we the don't even have the capacity to make that happen in real terms. Yeah. Yeah. That's very well said. That is what I think. Yeah. What about people like Bill Gates who say, look, tax the robots, man. Mm -hmm. Let's tax Bill Gates, you know. <laughs> well, he said he said that too. Yeah. He he meant both uh, and Warren Buffett too. By the way, they yeah. have a long history of. I think Buffett even testified in front of Congress that he's taxed at a lower marginal rate than his uh, 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 assistant. Yeah, I and think he that, said that's wrong, basically. Yeah, yeah, and I think that you know, in a world where the economy is growing very slowly, like if you think about it. A lot of the justification, even this recent round of tax cuts, like these Trump tax cuts, how are they justified? The idea is that if we give more money to wealthy people, they will invest more and it will grow the economy, right? It's a whole theory 
It's actually based in Keynes in a certain sense, and John Maynard Keynes, who's this mid 20th century economist, the idea that you can stimulate economic growth by stimulating demand, and in this case, by reducing taxes on the wealthy. But what we saw is that that tax cut generated very little economic growth, and it certainly generated very little investment, right? It was used, used mostly, um, corporations used their increased uh, incomes to, to buy their own stocks and just, you know, increase the wealth of the shareholders. So um, the, uh, the, the justification for massive inequality at a social level People, some people think those people just deserve their money. But at an economy-wide level, the idea is that rich people are job creators because they invest. If we live in a world where investment is declining, it either means that some other power has to take over that investment capacity. That's what some of these people like modern monetary theory, infinite money printing people think. Um, we need public investment. Uh, or, yeah, in, in general, the idea that we have to take this money away. Like the, the rich and powerful are not using their money for a socially good purpose. That's what people like Thomas Piketty would say as well. So we have to tax away that wealth and change the way that wealth is distributed. And also just the way economic life is organized, how investment takes place and so okay, on. Okay, so so let's approach this through the criticism of, bo of both the left and the right. So let's to take sort of the right here first, broadly speaking. So Peter Diamandis keeps saying that the availability of capital for investment, whether venture capital or angel capital and so on, is exploding, is going exponential, it's oh, yeah. accelerating, right? And you're saying the exact opposite. You're saying, well, the level of in, the rate of investment has been diminishing. How can mm -hmm. we make sense of these two incompatible statements? Yeah, I mean, so I guess the thing we haven't really talked about, which is really the key idea to me, is just that this idea that there's oversupply and overcapacity in the world economy. So yeah, there's more and more money. Like all of these people are making money and they're trying to figure out where to invest it. The answer is there just aren't that many places to invest in because there's just so much capital, like so much available investable funds relative to the demand for those funds. And the reason is that there are already so many producers producing all of these goods in the economy that what the market is signaling is to disinvest. Like the market is signaling to people to slow the rate of investment because it's already there's already too much capacity across all of these different economic activities. And what capitalism has, as it were, always depended on is this kind of seesawing back and forth between overcapacity, disinvestment, that gives money to invest in new things. And there's this kind of whole creative destruction business cycle. What we're just seeing is that's slowing down. And as it has done so, there's more and more loanable funds. There's more investment money, money for investment than ever before. There's just fewer places to invest in it. And one big sign of that um, is the fall in the long-term interest rate. So interest rates are very low for the long-term because there's so much money available for long-term investment and very little demand for it. And you know that's something that, just to give you another example of a radical solution, like John Maynard Keynes said, that over the long term, capitalism would produce an abundance of capital. There'd be so much productive capacity that both interest rates and profit rates would fall to a very low level. And this idea, which he called economic maturity, there was an American economist from Harvard, very famous Alvin Hansen, who called it secular stagnation. And this idea is now being taken up again in, econo in the economics profession, a recognition of the secular stagnation phenomenon. 
But what Keynes said we should do under those conditions is we had to radically reduce the work week. Like we had to get people down to a 15 hour per week work week. And we had to use public investment because profitability was no longer um, a good enough indication of where to invest. We need to use public investment and dramatically reduce the work week to create full employment. But now full employment meaning 15 hours of work a week rather than 40. So that's like the economic prospects of our grandchildren. Yeah, not as something that would just happen automatically, but as something that we had to actually institute in the world. And that's not exactly what I think, but it's closer to the idea that, you know, a realizable future is one in which we dramatically reduce the work week, right? And we find ways to, um, to think about how to invest that are, as it were, more democratic, like a system in which people are, are broadly have a has say, so that it's not just Bezos and, you know, Musk who are deciding what we should do with our wealth. So you're saying that in a way we have, in your opinion, reached this kind of level of maturity of capitalism where what Peter Diamandis is saying is true. We have an we have a huge supply of capital available. Yeah, that has grown exponentially, but now the uh, the availability of investments for that capital are diminishing. Yeah. And therefore, it's actually harder and harder to invest it. And therefore, actually, the rate of investing that capital is diminishing. And you mm -hmm. have a, an oversupply of capital and an undersupply of investment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's an under there's under investment generated by the phenomenon you described, an oversupply of investable funds and an under right. demand for those funds. And that's, right. you know, and the reason for that, in my view, is that we live in a world where you know, if you think about the past, very few countries were industrialized, right? It was like, you know, the UK, parts of Europe, and then also the US. When you're starting with a clean slate, the opportunities are endless, right? Exactly. I mean, if you're going in sub-Saharan Africa and you have to build the plumbing, the electric grid, the phone grid, the, mm -hmm. everything's like endless, right? But if you yeah. go to like uh, Singapore, obviously the, the, the possibilities to invest maybe... Uh, still there, but they're going to be much tougher and harder. Mm -hmm. And it should be so, said that, you know, the capacity of poorer regions to develop quickly in the past has depended on a fast overall growth of the world economy, really centered in the rich, the very wealthy, advanced uh, capitalist countries. So as things have slowed down since the 70s, it's gotten harder and harder for countries to kind of catch up, to use fast growth of the world economy to grow quickly. China has done it, but it should be said China over this incredible period of growth has moved from being one of the poorest countries in the world to having the income per capita of a country like Brazil. It hasn't done what Japan did. It didn't go from, you know, a relatively, um, well, Japan's a bad example. Take South Korea. It didn't go from yeah. being a poor country to an equal to the rich countries, right? China's and stuck Singapore in, the same as Korea, yeah. I think. Yeah, so China's stuck in a middle income trap right now. And the fact that the world economy is growing so slowly is kind of indicates that China might get stuck there for a long time. That makes it even harder for a place like Sub-Saharan Africa to um, really get the kind of rapid development sustained that would allow it to catch up. And that that's like, so under investment and this kind of slowdown in the wealthy countries is actually making it harder for poor regions to catch up. And we're not seeing income convergence, which people talked about for a minute. It's just not, it's not appearing in the numbers. Okay, so that was kind of 
the right and criticizing it, etc. But let, let's talk about the left, which is, mm-hmm. I guess, I guess modern, uh, what is it called? Modern monetary theory. Oh, yeah. So what do you think of that as a solution to mm-hmm. the current situation where if I get it, and that's a gross oversimplification perhaps, but it's basically something in between government spending, taxation, and printing of money. Is that it? Sort yeah. Of? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, so um, this idea has a long history. And I think one of the most famous theorists of it was this um, sort of socialist and radical Keynesian as well, Abba Lerner, who talked about something called functional finance in the 40s. He was also a big participant in something, I don't know if you've ever gotten into this, but like the socialist calculation debate, um, which was a debate between like Hayek and these other thinkers about how right. to organize the economy. In any case, um, they think, yeah, like we should be able to just print money and get out of it that way, maybe through public investment. The problem historically is that, uh, let's see, so all this is quite complicated, but one problem is that since the 1970s, states actually have tried to respond to underinvestment by stimulating private investment. They've tried to do that. States have taken on a lot of debt. Um, debt levels have increased dramatically. Interest rates have been held down. And, and in spite of all this effort to get private investment going, what we see is still that slowdown happening over time. So attempts to stimulate private investment haven't worked. What? Well, what if you say, look at uh, the, the dragon economies like Singapore, Korea, mm-hmm. Taiwan, even Japan. Wasn't that kind of like their history of development? What that a lot of that happens, that rapid growth happens like in the transition to this low growth world. So Japan caught up really before the 1970s and in the 80s, you know, and even the, those initial tiger countries, they were doing it at the tail end of this process. They were very lucky to be able to do it when they did. And it's very complicated how they actually did it. But in the 80s, you know, that's when a lot of the big transition happens for them. Those are places where, yeah, it's sort of, it's there you had really high profitability and high investment. Governments didn't have to stimulate mature economies to try to push them to invest. That, but if you look at places like the US, say, and the UK, or even Japan, where you've had stagnation for a while, countries, those governments like in Japan now, they're doing everything they can to try to get the economy going again. And They no have the biggest stimulus grow, package, I think, in the world, yeah. Japan. And no matter how much firepower they throw at it, they just can't get the private economy to restart and grow quickly. So that leads people to say, well, we should do public investment. Like instead of spending all this money trying to get private investors to spend, the state could just spend itself. And, you know, proposals like the Green New Deal, some versions of that say, look, the state will just massively invest in green infrastructure, get us to transition. And it's a beautiful idea. Um, the thing is just that like in the past, when people have proposed stuff like that, it's caused massive social conflict and it hasn't worked because obviously private investors do not want to give up their control over the economy. They don't want to give up that kind of control, which is, which is, you know, a small share of society that has the wealth that kind of determines not only whether the economy grows or shrinks, but also in which direction we grow the economy. Right. Um, so that's a big uh, conflict that I think we're going to see more probably in the future. The conflict between proposals for public investment 
and the, the needs of a private enterprise economy to prevent that from happening, those kind of costs. And historically, the investors have always won. Like the private economy has always, def- except under conditions of war, which are very unique and temporary, um, those kind of public investment proposals don't win. Yeah. Okay, so we've discussed the problems on both sides, hopefully. So we've covered the spectrum. But then where do you fit and what is the solution in your mm-hmm. view that will take us hopefully to what you call post-scarcity? Yeah, so, wow. Well, I love I like thinking about that and I, I try to be an optimist. So I'm going to give you my optimist kind of read. It's like, look at the world. There's already, it's already the case, especially before COVID-19, maybe after, that people were struggling. Like all over the world, there were these big social movements that were saying, we don't accept this decline in the demand for our labor. They were against austerity. They were against um, government corruption. They had these kind of very, you know, pro-democratic often. Um, Sorry to interrupt you here, but but let me just, because okay. there's this argument about what was, let, let's not forget about COVID-19 for a second yeah. here and mm-hmm. talk about like the United States. Most of my audience is American. So the president and many others would say, look, in the United States, we had the lowest level of unemployment in the history of the country, right? Mm-hmm. So how does it square? How do we square that claim, that statistic with what you're just saying that is actually the opposite? Where is right. the truth? What do the facts tell, tell yeah. us? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. And that's sort of why I'm a historian of unemployment, the rate and the phenomenon, and also why you'll notice when I talk about it, I call it labor under demand. I don't call it unemployment. And the reason for that, which is important to specify, is that this kind of under demand for labor, like the problem people have getting jobs, doesn't really appear as much as unemployment. Obviously, that's weird to say during COVID-19 pandemic, because we're now in the worst perhaps the worst depression, you know, in employment terms in U.S. history. Right, um, but maybe. we're talking about the but period immediately before, before, that, before that. Yeah, so even the Federal Reserve um, admitted that they don't think the unemployment rate was working anymore. Like, unemployment wasn't measuring labor under demand. And there's a bunch of different reasons for that. The main one is that um, so many people had dropped out of the labor force that they weren't counted in those numbers. And we had a very slow progress back to, um, back to um, uh, the, the previously prevailing rate of labor force participation. One thing you can look at that I think is a more like, just a better view on this topic is you can look at the nominal rate of wage growth. So like how fast are wages growing? Not accounting for inflation, just how fast are people's wages growing? In the past, after a recession, wage growth popped back up and it was like pretty rapid immediately after a recession ended, very shortly after. For the past uh, 30 or more years, what we've seen is it's only at the very end of a business cycle that the rate of nominal wage growth rises to 4% per, per year. It's only at the very end of the cycle that you get that. In the last few years before COVID, We had the lowest unemployment rate in an incredibly long time, yet the rate of wage growth never even hit that 4% um, marker that it used to hit at the end of previous uh, business cycles. So we had the lowest um, unemployment rates, but we never got the wage growth that you used to get in the past. And that's a sign 
that's what so the Fed has members of the Federal Reserve have written articles about this hidden slack in the labor market. Basically, there's there's a there's a way that there's an under demand for labor that's not being expressed in the numbers. So there's a few reasons. One, as I said, people just weren't looking for work, so they weren't counted in the numbers. Many people found jobs, but they weren't jobs that actually fit their skill set. So they kept looking for work, even though they had jobs. You know, you can have tons of people working in um, cleaning, food staff, Uber, but actually they're just making ends meet that way while looking for other jobs. Um, and there's other ways, again, that people can be sort of not counted in those numbers. That's something I really study. So yeah, it was the lowest unemployment rate. The problem is that across a lot of countries, unemployment no longer maps onto a lack of jobs. It's kind of, I don't know, whatever. We could talk about okay, it a lot so, more. So the numbers yeah. don't actually capture the phenomenon unemployment accurately anymore if they ever yeah. did in the yeah. first place. So, okay, so then let's go back to your argument because that's kind of like a bit of a digression just to get sure. the facts right or the ideas. Well, let's just say, you know, what's the world I want to live in? I want to live in a world where people work a lot less and we use technologies to reduce the amount of work people do and we provide them with, you know, the basic security that they need, as it were, just for being human beings. Um, and in that world, you know, that's the world where people can really take advantage of these technologies. They don't worry about unemployment and they can say, you know, what am I going to do with my life rather than how am I going to make a living? Like, I want to live in a world like those science fiction, you know, like Star Trek, but without automation. And I'll get to that in a second. But like, just that vision of the world, that post-scarcity vision, where people don't have to worry about how they're going to make a living. They're able to just relate to their life as like the beauty and joy of being a human being and being able to explore the world without worrying about how they're going to eat and how they're going to pay their rent. I think that world is totally realizable, even on the global scale. Realizing a world like that would really help us fight climate change because it would mean we could guarantee everyone that they will be okay. And then we'll figure out how to, you know, mitigate and transform society to respond to this. Um, that world is possible. If you don't have automation, you have to figure out how people are going to work and how that work is going to be distributed. And that's a big problem. And you have to think about like how investment is going to happen, how we're going to relate our past, our future. Um, and I guess I think that a lot of the automation stories, they use technology as a way to not think about these fundamental social questions. Like how are we going to distribute the work that remains to be done? Who should do that work? And how are we going to organize that work and make sure that people do it? Those are social questions. And actually, new technologies help us solve those questions. Digital technologies could really produce a very different mode, could be part of producing a different mode of social organization. But we have to face those social questions directly. We can't depend on technology to solve the problem for us. And I think ideas like basic income are already a step in that direction, thinking about how we have to use social institutions to transform the way we live, to take advantage of technologies. But I think we're going to have to go further than that. So, but how? How do we do that? How do we do it? I mean, you know, I... Because I, you're saying we don't have the growth to pay for it. No, we can't even pay for universal basic income. So how do we pay for post-scarcity, which mm. looks to me or sounds to me to be a whole order of magnitude above and beyond in terms of affordability, Mm. than universal basic income. How do we get there then? 
Well, you know, I mean, the fact that we can't afford basic income, we could afford it if we were willing to be very, um, uh, I don't want to use the word expropriative, but if we really took a lot of wealth from very wealthy people, we could afford it. If that's the conflict that would emerge. The, so you're saying don't tax allows, the robots, tax the people. Yeah, tax the people. And if you do that, you can use that money to sort of build up this area of social life where people have healthcare, housing, food, et cetera, and provide that, as it were, without charging them and require people to work a certain amount, you know? And we can have all, yeah, we can have all different kinds of ways of doing that. Having people work, dividing up the work to be done, making sure that this drudgery is shared across the population so that everyone can be an artist and an engineer and a scientist, you know, that kind of, that's the beautiful world that Star Trek suggests. And instead of using the replicator, we can just share the work that has to be done so everyone can have a share in that freedom and that kind of capacity to explore um, that, that, that Star Trek makes possible. I'm sort of suggesting a pretty big transformation in social life. And that's a big conversation. I'm not saying I've solved the problems of how to organize it, but I want people to see that even without full automation, we can think about how to do this and we can start asking these questions. We can start to imagine a world where people really have access to these basic services that they need. Um, and that's just what they're guaranteed as human beings. And everyone would work less providing those things and everyone would have free time to explore the possibilities of you know, human life under those conditions. I agree with you to the extent that, for example, we know that we don't need any new technology per se to feed all the starving people in the world yeah. or to provide them with clean water or things like that. Yes, technological breakthroughs will, will help, but we don't need them per se. We can already produce enough food so that no one needs to go hungry or drinking dirty water or without a shelter mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But we're not doing that, not for a lack of the technology or the resources, but for other reasons. So I agree with you on that. Mm -hmm. But then the question then is because you're suggesting this kind of radical divergence, paradigm shift. Yeah. What does that say about capitalism? Where, 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 is, where are we going then with capitalism? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I've had a few economists on my show before, and uh, it's easier for economists in general and you're luckily not an economist, as you said, but it's easier for economists in general to foresee the end of the world than the end of capitalism, yeah. it seems to me. And I think that, you know, reading science fiction, like, uh, you know, reading Arthur C. Clarke, like Childhood's End, or reading, you know, um, Cory Doctorow, or re you know, they, those, those are better guides to thinking about the future than economists, I think, because capitalism's only been around for a little while. And I just don't think it's like the last stage of human history. I think we have to think bigger um, than that. And So do you, you know, foresee it ending and do you foresee something specific replacing it? Yeah, I mean, I so part of why I talk about post-scarcity is because I think that anyone who thinks seriously about getting out of capitalism should be kind of try to think about what the world is that we actually want to live in. And I think of that in these terms that I call post-scarcity, which is a world where people work a lot less. They have security, economic, as it were, security, and an open life to explore the galaxy or whatever it is that people are going to do. And 
that how we get to that world, yeah, it's a it's a very um, it's a difficult question, but it's I think it's going to take us out of capitalism. And I think that having a productive conversation about what that looks like and not pretending that there's just one solution, but having an open-ended conversation about that and admitting that, you know, we don't want to live in the Soviet Union. We don't want to live in like some terrible state-run shoddy economy where people work a lot and they don't feel like any of their work, you know, matters. We don't want to live in a technocratic Keynesian society like where people are slotted into these roles, you know, and people decide from whatever, like the, you know, these boards, like bureaucratic boards, like what the life possibilities that people are going to have. We don't want to, the solutions of the past didn't work, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't think up new solutions. And specifically, we should think up solutions today that use the technologies we have. Digital technologies are incredible for allowing new forms of organization, new forms of coordination across vast numbers of people. And so we should be thinking optimistically about that. And, and we need people like you and your listeners who, you know, know a lot about this stuff to, 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 um, to be creative and to be optimistic and to find some way forward, you know, along or be part of that conversation. Because I think what we're going to see over the next few decades is that, you know, the state isn't suddenly going to invent a new solution. We're going to see rising inequality. We're going to see further stagnation. It's going to interact not just with the pandemic, but with climate change. There's going to be big social movements all over the world fighting against these kinds of situations and looking for some way forward, some path out of the predicament that we find ourselves in. And that's what this divergence is going to emerge from. And it's sort of on all of us who are analyzing this phenomenon and you know, looking at it and participating in it to be part of, you know, trying to think forward to some other other path. And that's like a, I'm reticent to say like, here's a solution. I found it in my pocket or like check out, you know, my specific version of what that looks like. I'm encouraging people to like, you know, as it were, look seriously at this and think about what the solution will be. We have to think about it together. Aaron, we're kind of really running out of time here. Uh, so what's the best place for people to find more about you and your work? Um, I just have a website, AaronBeninov.com. I also am on Twitter, ABeninov. Um, and my book, Automation of the Future of Work, where I lay all this out in much more detail than in those articles, um, should come out with Verso on October 27th. And yeah, uh, you can find on my website, I think, like ways to email me and, uh, or contact through Twitter. And I'm very, I'm really happy we did this because I, I really want to, this is like, for me, a way to interact with people who are really deep in the world of technology and AI. We didn't even get to talk about AI, um, but yeah. I'm, I'm really excited to keep learning about all this stuff. We unfortunately didn't have the time to talk about AI or COVID-19 because oh, yeah. I know you have a call coming in about nine minutes. Right. So uh, I, 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 I'm going to have to wrap this up. But what would be the parting message that you want us to take away from you and this conversation today that was almost two hours now? Mm. What's the one thing, the most important thing that you want to communicate to our viewers and listeners? I think it's a story that technologies can really contribute to human freedom. And we can, you know, we can realize a lot of the things that people who are deeply interested in new technologies want, but it's going to take 
Um, it's not happening automatically, and it's going to take a much broader change in society to realize that. And thinking about what that looks like together, you know, if you look at the numbers, you'll see it's not happening as the way you think it is. And if you look at that, you can sort of be part of this conversation about what could actually realize the world that we want to live in. Um, and that's a big open conversation. It's a very exciting conversation to participate in. And also that we shouldn't be fearful of technological unemployment. Definitely not, yeah. But rather the growth, the rate of growth of the overall economy, which is the determining factor as per whether there's a growth for labor or not. Yeah, it's not, it's not, an, it's not an incredible speed up in technological change that's causing the low demand for labor. It's this long-term tendency to stagnation. And it's a huge problem around the world. Low demand for labor is a huge global problem. And the solution to it is something that we're going to have to find. Aaron Benenaf, thank you so much for being with us today. I have to admit, I really learned a lot from your papers in our conversation today. I'll try to put links to all of them. And I really appreciate your time being with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great talking to you. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. 